Peter comes to, his, to the high point in Hebrews chapter 9. This is the point where he really gets into what he calls his main point. He argues from the symbolism of the tabernacle. His thesis is that uh, the tabernacle is getting ready for Jesus. Everything about the, the law is about Jesus. Incidentally, when you use the word the law, we use phrases like I've died to the law and so on. But one needs to remember what the word the law means in the Bible. It doesn't mean principles of righteousness. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic theologian, turns the Mosaic law into a kind of system of morality. So in Western culture, the law means principles of righteousness. But that gets you into trouble, because when you start saying, I've died to the law, have you died to principles of righteousness? Have you died to holiness? No, no, surely not. Have you died to obedience? I had an email once from a man in South Africa who wrote to me asking for some help. And he said, he said, can you help me? My pastor is oppressing me. And I said, what do you mean by that? And we sort of corresponded a bit over the email. And he said, no, my pastor is oppressing me. And I said, what, what do you mean? What, what, in what way? Well, he keeps on telling me things to do. He's putting me under the law, he said. And I said to him, well, what, what sort of things? And he said to me, well, he, he says things like, I ought to go to church, and I ought to pray, and I ought to read my Bible. But, that, but that's, that's commands. I, I'm dying to the law. He shouldn't be commanding me. So I wrote back and said, if you don't like commands, better throw away your Bible, because lots of them in the Bible, <laughs> even in the New Testament. You see, he's confusing, that man was confusing the law with principles of righteousness. That's not what it means. In the... New Testament, the word the law means the Mosaic system. It means everything in connection with Moses. And it's not just ten commandments, there's two thousand commandments about uh, circumcision and holy days and economy and trees and skin diseases. Everything's all in the law. Thousands of them. We've died to the whole business. If you ask the question, have we died to the ten commandments? It's a tricky question. It's like the question, have you stopped beating your wife? If you say yes, you're in trouble. If you say no, you're in trouble. You're in trouble either way, you know. You better reject the whole question. Um, if you say no, I've died, I've died to the Ten Commandments, well, that sounds as though you're being wicked. And if you say, well, I've not, I've not died to the Ten Commandments, that means you're keeping the Sabbath and you're not, you're not travelling anywhere on a Saturday. You're in trouble either way. The answer is that what Jesus has put us under is higher than the Ten Commandments. He says, you've heard that he was said, don't kill. But I'm saying, you don't even get angry. It's not that we're lower than the Ten Commandments. It's that we're high, higher than the Ten Commandments. And that's how you, are, you answer a question about tithing. When someone says, are we obliged to tithe? The answer is, no, not really. But if you move from law to grace, you don't go lower, you go higher. If you gave 10% under the law, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do such a low thing as giving 10% under grace. You don't go backwards, you go, you go forwards. So uh, I use the term the Christian super tithe. You're sort of going higher than the tithe because you're under grace and grace is going forwards. So even what Thomas Aquinas would call the moral law, we're not even under that because it's too low. Not, not, not that it's wrong, but it's too low. And the Sabbath, we're not under the Sabbath. Although I've learned, having, having been a little bit sick, um, I've learned <laughs> the hard way that uh, Sabbath keeping is, is wise, it's is wisdom to keep one day a, 
and said that it's not a law anymore, it's wisdom. But it's still wisdom, still a wise thing to do. And when you read the Old Testament law, there's a lot of wisdom in it, so not under it. But when, it's, when you get things like um, the, um, what's all I want? The, the laws about um, property and tribe not being allowed to sell land. It was illegal to sell your land in Israel. Remember Naboth and King Ahab. The king demands Naboth's land. Naboth says, it's illegal, I can't do it. And just think what that does. It stops anybody from being landless. It stops the poor from being totally destitute. It stops the rich from being disgustingly rich because they buy everything. It would solve many problems in Africa if we kept some little bits of the law. But it's wisdom. It's not actually law. We learn from it. And so on. And the problem with our world is, I don't, know, I don't know where our world is going to, not anybody, except the coming of Jesus. But um, there was a time, I suppose, when about 40% of the world owned about 60% of the world's resources. And then it was about 70, 30. And then about 20%, owned about 80%, then 10%. What do you reckon it is now? I don't know, but I would think it's about 5% owned 95%. And that leads to slavery. It means you own everybody. And uh, all over the world, at the moment, it's happening, even in America, some guy goes to get a job in America, and the guy says, well, we've got no money, but uh, you can be an intern, and we'll see if we can find anything for you. And, and, and he's, he's owning you, and there's no, there's no contract. He, he, he pays you enough to keep you alive. That's, that's what you do with a slave. You keep your slave alive, but you don't give him any more than you have to. And uh, slavery is back big time. More slaves in our world than ever in the history of the human race. Right now, people make billions of dollars out of them. Uh, have, you me, have you heard me tell the story of when I bought a slave? I bought a slave. Did you know about that? I told you that story. I was trying to help a girl in town, a naughty, naughty girl, immoral girl in the middle of town. I tried to help her. And one day she disappeared. And I thought, what's happened to marry her? And then I get this telephone call. Hi, Pastor, this is Mariam. Hi, Mariam, where are you? I'm in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia? What are you doing there? Oh, I've got a job there. What sort of job? Oh, I'm a houseworker. I've got a job as a, a guardian to someone's children. And did you arrive? Oh, yesterday. I said to her, Mariam, you're in bad trouble. You'll be a slave within days. There's only one way in which you can maybe be rescued. And that is if you totally hide your passport. And if you hide your passport, we might one day get you out. Otherwise, we'll never see you again. Yeah, no, no, Pastor, you're sort of worried. I mean, with some agency. I said, what agency? Tell me about it. His name was Mohammed. I'll give you his mobile phone number. <laughs> Mohammed was a mobile phone. That was the agency. About three days later, I get another phone call. Oh, Pastor, I'm in trouble. I work from six, six o'clock in the morning till midnight. They, they so, so badly treat me. Um, um, they made me a Muslim. I look so many more booey booey with uh, the little slit, slit for the eyes. I said to her, how comes you're phoning me? What, what, what phone have you got? She said, well, I, st I stole the brother's phone in order to phone you. <laughs> I said, go, go and see that man. Tell him you stole his phone and tell him I want to speak to him. And I spoke to him and said, no, this girl's a friend of mine. I want her, I want her back. And I think my British accent helps me. I think you could have just switched the phone off and that would have been the end of that. But the British tried to work at rescue 
rescuing slaves. And I think he probably thought I was one of them. Anyway, I was lucky. He said, okay, he said, it'll cost you. And I said, how much? Answer, 300, 300 pounds. You can buy a slave for 300 pounds. I bought a slave. She came back to Kenya and I said, they're free. So I bought a slave. <laughs> but that's all over the place, all over the world. You can buy a slave for 300, 300 pounds if you want to. Slavery's back big time. And that's because of the distancing of the rich and poor as never before. And it changes politics. You can see it in America right now. You can see it in England right now. You can see it in Kenya right now. Politics no longer becomes discussing philosophies. It's personalities fighting rivalry for each other, even within the party, as we're seeing here in Britain at the moment. Um, and in America and everywhere else, it's just one big battle for power. And principles don't come into it anymore. Democracy has died, really. But it was Christians who founded all these things. It was Christians who pioneered democracy. John Gilburn in Cromwell's army, Roger Williams in America. It is, it's become nothing but power struggles. What will it lead to? Who knows? You might, you might find out in the next few years. Where are we leading to? We're going there fast. And, um, but the Mosaic law would have stopped all that if you were not allowed to sell your land. If you, it was impossible for you to become destitute because it was illegal to be selling your land and knowing that some rich guy couldn't come and put pressure on you, not even the king, not even, not even Ahab could force you. He had to murder you to get his land, which is what, what uh, happened. And the reason why it happened was Jezebel, the wife, she didn't grow up under the Mosaic law. She said to him, what sort of king are you? For her, king's just absolute power. Ahab, Ahab was willing to keep the law. I mean, said to him, it's illegal, Ahab didn't do anything. The law still had a certain authority with him. But Jezebel, she comes from a different culture altogether. The idea of keeping some law, that's not on her system. I mean, I just kid him, she says. And that's what happens. So the Mosaic law is still wisdom, and we can learn a lot from it. Especially in God knows how to run a country. He knows how to keep the poor from being too destitute. How to, how to block the rich from being too rich. And the Lord did that. But we're not under it. It's only, if we use it, it's just wisdom. We learn from it. But we're not under it. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to keep these holy days. We don't have to be keeping the food laws and uh, other things. Matter of wisdom. If you want to walk on a Saturday, you can. But you might be wise to take your day off occasionally. It's wisdom, no more. But it all points to Jesus. And so our writer is now expounding that thought. And the, the big thing is the tabernacle. And so he begins by telling us about it. Even the first commandment had regulations for worship and an, an earthly place of holiness. A tent was prepared and so, so on. He goes on describing the tabernacle. And then he says how it's fulfilled in Jesus. So think about the tabernacle. It was a square area of open ground in which was a tent and the tent had two rooms to it two compartments to it outside the tent were two things a big a big altar for sacrifice and a laver a big bowl for washing yourself in and inside were various other things what did it stand for well when you listen to preachers you find them getting all sorts of odd ideas from the tabernacle I've heard people making their churches very legalistic. 
I say, sit Moses, God said to Moses, make sure you make all things according to the pattern shown you in the mountain, so there's some detailed system, and they use it for obeying the pastor, obeying the tithe or something, they use it for uh, building up the idea of everything being minutely controlled. I don't think that's the main idea of the tabernacle. It's true under the law, I don't think it's true under grace. Or you get people that learn lessons from church government, bishops, priests and deacons, or you get Pentecostals who say the Holy of Holies is the baptism of the Spirit and uh, outside is the ordinary Christians. People get all sorts of different ideas from the tabernacle. Does the Bible tell us what the tabernacle is about? Yes, I think it does. It's firstly about the structure of the universe. The outer courtyard stands for this world. The tabernacle stands for the heavenly kingdom. And there's not meant to be two compartments in it. Not, there are not two compartments in heaven. But the, the veil was temporary. It was torn down when Jesus died. So there's only one compartment in heaven. It's not meant to be two. But, it's, but the tabernacle stands for earth outside the tabernacle and the heavenly realm inside the tabernacle. I think it stands for the progress of time. The first compartment stands for before Jesus came. The veil stands for Jesus himself. When his body is torn upon the cross, the veil or the entrance into the new covenant is torn down. When the new covenant opens, the veil is torn down. When Jesus is torn upon the cross, the way into the new covenant is torn down. And you're in the new covenant. So it stands for two covenants, I believe, or the progress of time. This side stands for before Jesus comes. The, the, the veil stands for Jesus himself. The other side is, is the new covenant. Or you could say it stands for levels of fellowship. Outside, you're not having any fellowship. Outside the place of fellowship. But what's there is the, the altar, the blood, and the, the washing, the cleansing. And if you go that way, you come into fellowship. So although fellowship, you're not having any fellowship, the way you're coming into fellowship is there for you. The, the, the cross, you could say, and the new birth, you could say. And then you come into the tabernacle, and once again it stands for fellowship. The table, there's a table there. Although it's only symbolic, nobody ever went there. The, the common people never went inside. It wasn't a meeting place. Nobody ever met inside. Only the priests could even go there. So 11 of the tribes never went inside at all. Jesus never went in. Jesus never saw the inside of the temple. Think about that. It was his temple, but he never ever was allowed to go in it. He wasn't a Levite. He was a Judean. So Jesus never went inside the inside of the, of the temple. He went into the courtyard, but not inside. But inside the first compartment was the table, standing for fellowship, having a meal with God. And there was a lampstand, the Lord enlightening you. There was no windows there, no light came from outside. The only light was God-given. It was the light of God. You walk in the light, you have, you're illumined and shown things by, by God shining upon you. There's the sevenfold lampstand. And there was a little altar, the altar of incense. It was very close to the curtain. It was very near the Holy of Holies. And that stood for a prayer already going up for you. When you went inside, you found prayer already going up for you. The incense stood for prayer. It was a kind of prayer for you. And any prayers you prayed were carried up on that, on that incense going into the presence of God. You could say it stands for the intercession of Jesus. And then there was another compartment. There was a curtain there. And inside there was another compartment, which 
stood for a higher level of fellowship that nobody knew under the old covenant. It was the way into the very immediate presence of God, where God was there shining in his glory. You could see him if you went inside, although, although seeing him would kill you. You, were, you weren't allowed to see it. And when you did go in, the place was filled with smoke, so you couldn't see anything. You weren't allowed to actually see that glory. If the priest, if the priest saw it, a high priest saw it, it would kill him. And you remember the high priest had little bells on the bottom of his robe, and which rang jingle jangle as he went in. And he had dried pomegranates, which dried and the pips rattled. So as he went in and his robe was swaying, it went jingle, 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 rattle, rattle, rattle. You could hear whether he was still alive. Because if anything went wrong, you'd be killed. And there was a Jewish tradition, it's not in the Old Testament, there was a Jewish tradition which you tied a rope around his foot. If he died, you could pull him out by a rope without, without going inside. That's not in the Bible, but it's in Jewish tradition. Inside was the ark, standing for the box, the ark, standing for the very presence of God. Inside the ark, but not visible, was the law. The law was, it was covered, the law was not condemning you. You couldn't even see it, but you knew it was there. And on top was a golden slab, the place where the blood was sprinkled. And he sprinkled the blood when the high priest went in. On the Day of Atonement, he sprinkled the slab upon the top with blood. And the law was underneath covered by the sprinkling of blood. In front of, the, of it was Aaron's rod that budded. Remember the story of the time when they disputed the way of salvation. And Aaron's rod budded to show that salvation is by sacrifice. That was there in front, not in, but in front of the, the ark. And the golden pot with manna when they were in the wilderness. And manna just fell from heaven for them. They put a pot of it inside the Holy of Holies to, to, to remind us that God is the one who drops our provisions from heaven for us. The golden pot was, of manna was there. And at the end of the golden slab were statues of angels and they were bowing down in, in worship, worshipping the Lord there. So when you came in, you came to this place where you knew that the blood perfectly dealt with your sins. You were joining the angels in worship. You knew God provided for you. You knew that the way of sacrifice for your sins was the, the way of coming to God. You had total and perfect assurance. And so there was a higher level of fellowship when you had full assurance of faith, when you're going higher than just having a meal with somebody, you're in the very presence of the glory of God. And when Jesus died upon the cross, you remember, at the very point where he died, the temple, which was a kind of solid tabernacle, the temple was torn down, the veil of the temple was torn down from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, it wasn't a man or a woman that did it, it was God who from the top of the veil tore it apart. And uh, the way into the holiness, the holiest, was made open even, even in that symbolic way. So that was the symbolism of the tabernacle. So he lists those things in chapter 9, 1 to 10. He just lists them and describes them. And he says that uh, the way is not open while the first section is still standing. And uh, you can offer sacrifices, but they only deal with earthly things. They're all picturing Jesus. And that's what leads him into 9, 11. But... But when Christ appeared as a high priest, and now he goes on to how this is fulfilled in Jesus. Let's read it. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have 
come, or uh, there's a variation in the manuscript. Some manuscripts say have come, some manuscripts say the good things which are here. It doesn't make any difference, whichever way you take it, it means the same thing. It means the things that God has got for us now, these things which have come or they're here for us now, whichever way you read it. It's the good things that God wants to give us now. And Jesus has appeared. Does it mean appeared on earth? He's come to earth? Or does it mean appeared in the heavenly sanctuary? I think it means both. The question is, when did Jesus' high priest begin? Did it begin only when he went into the heavenly sanctuary? Or was he already the high priest? I think he was already the high priest. When he was interceding for us on earth, he was being a priest. When he was dying upon the cross, he was being a high priest. So the high priest of Jesus begins even before he ascended into the heavenly sanctuary. Even when he was here on earth, he was living the perfect life. The high priest had to be blameless. And the high priest actually, the high priest actually went in, on the day of atonement. The high priest actually went into the holy place twice. He went in and dealt with his own sins. He went very humbly dressed in a nothing but a, a linen white robe, a few little things. He was dying. For, he was presenting sacrifice for his own sins. Then he came out again and put his majestic clothes on, his brightly coloured robes. And this time he's representing Jesus. He's now not coming for his own sins. He's now, as it were, sinless. He's dealt with those. He's now coming in on behalf of Jesus. He's now symbolising Jesus. And so he comes in and he appears. He comes and arrives. So the word appeared here means both arrived on planet Earth. It also means arrived in the heavenly sanctuary. When Christ arrives or appears in the heavenly sanctuary through the greater and more perfect. And people get stuck with that phrase. The Scholars get stuck with that phrase. They're really getting stuck with the word through. What does the word through mean there? Is, does it mean by means of? You do something through something else, by means of something else. In which case, what's it referring to? Some people think it's the church, by means of the church. Don't think it means that. Some people think it means his body, through his own body. Don't think it means that. What's the word through me? Well, then some people want to take it to mean he goes through something in order to arrive somewhere else. Well, I don't think it means that because there is no somewhere else. When you get into the Holy of Holies, there's nowhere else to go. So you can't go through the Holy of Holies. So people get, all the commentaries argue, get confused about their word through. I've never talked to this to my friend R.T. Kendall from America about this, but I think you have to be American to understand this. The word through have you ever noticed how Americans use the word through in a different way from which the English used it? And the Englishman will say, I read pages uh, 1 to 10. An American will say, I read pages 1 through 10. And the word through means until I get to a certain point. I would say, Hebrews is being a good American. When you get through till you reach the point of the Holy of Holies, that's where things happen. So the word through there doesn't mean through one thing to get to the other. It means through to a certain point so you've arrived. It's the, it's the American way of using the word through. And it happens to be a coincidence. So it means when he came through until he reaches the point where he's in the Holy of Holies, that's the meaning of the word through there. And, it, and certain things happen. So then there are three things, and this is where I will stay for the rest of the morning. There are three things that are given you by the blood of Christ, according to this section. 
when he comes through until to to, to he reaches the points of the perfect tent, the inside of the Holy of Holies in heaven, not the earthly one, but the heavenly one, he entered once forever into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, or the Greek is, a, is an aorist participle, if you know what that means, or having secured, having already got on one occasion, having secured an eternal redemption. The first thing the blood of Christ will do for you is it will give you eternal redemption. At the point where Jesus took his perfect sacrifice and he presented it to the Father, at that point he obtains a redemption which for anybody who's got it, you get it by faith, for anybody who's got it is an eternal redemption. And he's got it, he's done, he's finished with. It's not annual redemption. Under the law, it was annual redemption. You got redeemed from little sins for a year. Only little sins. The Lord did not cover big sins. If you touched a dead insect, you, you had to be cleansed. If you had some skin disease, you had to be cleansed. If you didn't pay your tithes, you were sinning. You had to be cleansed. Be outside the camp until you were atoned for. But they were only little sins. If you really did something serious, the Lord couldn't help you. When David committed adultery, nothing could help him. When David killed Uriah's husband, nothing could help him. He said, you desire not sacrifice, or else would I give it to you. There was no sacrifice. He couldn't give a, a sacrifice for murder or adultery. If you didn't keep the Sabbath, you could be executed. If you slapped your dad in anger, you could be executed. If you worshipped another god, death sentence. We were really big sins, you were executed. Although, you were not executed for sins against property. If you stole something, you were not executed. You had to give it back four times over. Outside of Israel, in the Lord Hammurabi, in Babylonia, Egypt, Assyria, those surrounding countries, you'd be killed if you stole some property. Those surrounding countries, there's one law for the rich, another law for the poor. If you sinned against the king, you'd be in trouble. If you sinned against some, some poor person, nothing would happen. In the law of Israel, there was no discrimination between class, even Naboth. And Ahab, the king, didn't matter he was the king, he still, he still was under the law. And the law dealt with the rich and the poor equally. Foreigner and the local equally, men and women equally. It was equality under the law. It was fair and just. All the surrounding countries were unjust, but not Israel. And you didn't kill somebody just for stealing something. There was no death penalty for crimes of property. You sympathised with the poor. If he stole something, you sympathised with him. So you had to... It was painful. He paid back four times over, but there was no death sentence. So little sins could be atoned for for one year. But that's all. Next year, it do it all over again. Sometimes repetition is a sign of failure. You keep on doing something again, and the reason why you do it again and again and again is because you don't succeed. You, you do an exam, and you fail the exam, and so the university lets you take it again next year. Then you fail again. They're very nice to you, they, they let you take it again. And you keep on taking that exam again and again and again. The reason why you're taking it so frequently is because each time you're failing. As soon as you passed, it's finished. You never take the exam again. Repetition is a sign of failure. And it was the same in Israel. The reason why you went back year by year by year 
is because each year did not give you the cleansing of conscience. Didn't really deal with your sins. So you had another go and got a little bit forgiven for another year. It was a sign of failure. But when Jesus took his own blood into the Holy of Holies, he did it once forever. Never, never did it need to be repeated, repeat, repeated. Because he dealt with all sins of every single person for the entire course of the human race, from Adam to the last sin that will ever be committed. He took, he took the sins of the world upon himself. Hebrews chapter 10, chapter 2, verse 10 says he tasted death for every person. He died for every single person in the human race. One of the things that happened between the 16th century and the 17th century is people got hold of the idea that if there's such a thing as predestination, as there is, then it means that Jesus didn't die for everybody, and he dies for the elect. You don't find that in the 16th century, you find it in the 17th century. Calvin would say, you read Calvin in John 3.16, how can we believe unless we know the sacrifice has been made for our sins. You come to Jesus and you don't have to say, this is especially for me, it's, it is for you, because it's for everybody. How can we believe unless we know that an expiation has been made for our sins? Calvin, on John 3.16. Calvin, it is no small thing that anyone should die as it go, whose sins have been, who've been, who's been bought by the blood of Christ. It is no small thing that anyone should perish whose sins have who's, who's been bought by the blood of Christ. Calvin's doctrine is that everybody was bought and atoned for when Jesus died upon the cross. And so the only thing you need is to believe. In the 17th century, Westminster Confession of Faith and these sort of things, the 17th century Puritans, they began to read predestination into the cross. Jesus died for the elect. Well, I don't think that's biblical. And Calvin solves, solves the problem. Calvin, Calvin argues that um, Jesus dies in the outer courtyards for everybody, but it evails it, it and becomes effective in the Holy of Holies. When, it, when you're a believer, the blood is there in the Holy of Holies, and it avails, it, it works for you in the heavenly glory. His doctrine was, and I think he's right, is that atonement does not take, take place upon the cross. Effective atonement does not take upon, place upon the cross. It takes place when God declares that you're righteous because it's been applied to you. It's effective when God responds to your faith and there's significance in faith. You believe and then that which is there for you avails for you. And it means that you don't have to ask complicated questions. I was preaching once in the University of Nairobi and a young guy came to see me afterwards and he said to me, I would like to be saved. He said to me, I'd like to be saved. But I'm not sure whether I've been predestined. That was his question. I'd like to be saved, but I'm not sure whether I've been predestined. And um, it, oh, this was at the university. So I said, well, you know, people come to the university and some do mathematics and they do different differential calculus and all these sophisticated things in the math department. But before they ever come to the university to do this sophisticated stuff, they learn their two times table. Once two is two, two times two, two, two is a four, three, two is a six. They do their baby class and their nursery schooling. 
do the nursery schooling before you do the staff at the university. And you don't bother about university when you're learning your, your two times table. And I said to him, your two times table is, you must repent, Jesus died for you. If on the cross, God demands you believe right now tonight. Predestination, come back to him in 10 years time. Tonight, believe in Jesus. Don't even bother about, about predestination. Jesus died for you. And he's demanding that you believe in him now tonight. You see, you don't need to ask questions about, am I elect? The cross is for you. Jesus died for you. Don't even bother about it. Put your faith in Jesus. And then you do know that you're elect because you know that God helped you to believe in Jesus. And you then know you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Don't begin there. Begin with Jesus died for you. Don't get so clever in your theology that people are being held up by your clever theology. Don't ask complicated questions. Believe in Jesus. He died for you. Finish. To solve all these predestinarian questions before you believe. And Hebrews says, He tasted death for every man. And the 16th century, Calvin, Luther, Anglican prayer book, all the Cranmer, Ridley, Latimer, these guys all believe that Jesus is there for you now and has paid the price for your sins. Come and believe. Don't ask complicated questions. And as Hebrews, he tasted death for every man. He died in the open courtyard of this world. And if you believe, then that blood is being taken into the heavenly sanctuary for you. It is limited at that point. And you are, you are given eternal redemption. The first thing the blood of Christ will do for you is it gives you eternal redemption. You will never lose it. You cannot lose it. It has been given to you. It's yours. You own it. People don't always like that. They, they, some people seem to want you to be insecure all the time. They don't like security. They think security is dangerous. If you're secure and you can't do something, you, you'll go and be wicked and sin. It doesn't work that way. If you ever see how secure you are, if you ever see how much God loves you, you will say to him, Lord, if you love me like that, I don't ever want to sin again. It won't make it a well secure so I can sin. It will soften your heart. It will tenderize you. It will make you so grateful. You will say, Lord, I never knew there could be love like that. And you don't want to sin again. You don't want to live simply. You'll say, Lord, if you do love me like this, it, it won't make you sin. He can, he can not give you 
more than he wants to give you, but you won't ever take back what he's given you. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And when you see the grace of God like that, it will break your heart. It will tenderize you. It will soften you. It will make you want to love everybody everywhere. It will humble you. It will make you meek and undefensive. It will make you put your life in the hands of God and let him handle everything. He won't make you want to sin. Don't think that if God gives me this grace, I'll go and sin. He won't do that for you. He will soften you. And the last thing in the world you'll ever want to do is to sin against such grace and mercy and love. I give them. I give it to them. Yes, I'll give it to them. And it's a past tense. It's an air. It's past simple. I, I having secured, having obtained eternal redemption and I give it to you. That's the first thing the blood of Christ will do for you. The second thing that the blood of Christ will do for you is it will give you daily cleansing. He says because the reason why you have this eternal salvation is because for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Old Testament sacrifices cleanse the flesh, which means it cleanses you in an earthly kind of way. You were put outside the camp and you couldn't come back inside the camp. Your position was one of a defiled person outside the camp. But it was only an earthly thing. It was only fleshy. It only, only dealt with your body and your physical position in relation to the camp of Israel. It wasn't dealing with your conscience or your relationship to God. It cleansed you by way of your position, whether you were inside or outside the camp. And so if you did something really serious, they put you outside the camp. Then... Or if I say serious, something that's significant, they put you outside the camp. And then the sacrifice would be offered, it would be sacrificed a goat or a bull or something, and you came back in. That's all it was. It wasn't much more than that. But if it cleansed your flesh and your position in the camp, how much bigger, how much greater is the blood of Jesus? How much more will the blood of Christ, not, not some animal, who through the eternal spirit, which I take to be a reference to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to go to the cross, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. He was sinless, he was spotless, he never, never, never sinned. He did love the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. He did love his neighbour as himself. He did something that no one of us could ever have done. Remember, he came to his enemies. He came to the Pharisees and scribes. And he looked them in the eye and he said to them, Which of you can convict me of sin? Would you like to do that? Would you like to go to somebody who really did not like you and look them in the eye and say, Can you find anything wrong with me? I don't think I don't think I'd like to risk that. Can you look an enemy in the eye and say, Can you find anything at all that is wrong with me? No, I don't think any of us could do that. But Jesus could do that. He could look his worst enemies in the eye and say, can you find any single point in which I'm, not, uh, I'm sinning? Which of you can convict me of sin? And the answer is nobody could do it. He loved everybody. He never told a lie. He never stole anything. He never ill-treated anybody. 
He was kind to people. He never said a harsh word against a woman. He never said a harsh word against a real sinner, somebody who really was a corrupt tax official like Matthew, somebody who was a real prodigal, a woman caught in adultery, a Syrophoenician woman, a rich young ruler, these people that Jesus met. If they were sincere and basically genuine in, in coming to him, and even if they were not, but needy people, he never, never, never said a harsh word against them. I mean, look, look at Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. There were these Pharisees and scribes coming with this woman caught in adultery. They don't bring the man, that's interesting. And I'd like to know how did they catch her? What was doing? Peeping through some window somewhere? How did they catch her anyway? They bring this woman in and care about this woman. She's just a tool in their devices. Oh, the law says we should stone her. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about Jesus. What they're trying to do is get him into trouble. These holy people, these holy Pharisees, proud of their righteousness, drag this sinful woman. And Jesus says nothing. He just trawls in the sand. Whatever that means, when we get to heaven, we can see the video and see, see what he drew. And he doesn't say anything. Yeah, okay, you might want to kill her. All right, you kill her. You cast the, the law also says the witness must cast the first stone. So, so you cast the first stone. They can't, they're trying to get him into trouble. He's getting them into trouble. They, they want to get him into trouble with the Romans for um, saying she should be executed. Now he's getting them into trouble because they, they're the one meant to do it. So he's, he's playing a trick against them. They're playing against him. And they all creep away one at a time. And he says to the woman, you can go, it's all right, you can go. Oh, 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 oh by the way, they don't condemn you, nor do I. But by the way, just don't sin anymore. That's it. And notice he doesn't say, don't sin anymore, and then I won't condemn you. He puts it the other way around. I don't condemn you, you can go. But don't sin anymore. I mean, what graciousness. Well, who's, who's the holy person, the Pharisees or Jesus? Who's the one that's being nice and kind to this immoral woman? And I work in, I suppose, the wickedest square kilometre of Kenya. I go in early into town because of the traffic jams. I go early into town and I sit in a, a place where the wickedest people in Kenya are to be found here, plus me. And, um, there's all sorts of wicked girls there, Mariam and lots of others. These con men and tricksters. And some of them I get to know a little bit. And I can tell you, the worst of sinners, if you get to know them, you begin to sympathise with them. You see where they're coming from. You see what trouble they're in. You find about their broken homes. You find about their collapsed family background. Or the, you know, the results of some rape or something. You find out that they're totally destitute and have absolutely no ways of surviving. And you begin to feel for them. And you begin to say, oh, if I was in their shoes, I'd be sitting here trying to get some money from somebody as they are. And Jesus was famous for the people that he spent time with. He's with tax collectors and all these sinners. You know what a sinner was in, in the vocabulary of the scribes and the Pharisees? It was somebody who was not allowed inside the synagogue. They came and they said, no, we don't, you're a sinner. 
a sinner in, in their vocabulary, was a person who was not allowed inside places of worship. Now, to repent, you can repent and clean your life up a little bit, maybe with it, let you in. But Jesus didn't spend his time with the Pharisees and the tax collectors, and, and, and the Pharisees and the scribes. He spent his time with the tax collectors, con men, crooks, wicked ladies. That's where he spent his time. He was spotless, he was pure, he was so compassionate, he had such feeling for people. He loved people so much, had time with people. He never wrote a book. I spent some of my time writing books. Jesus didn't write books. He had more time with people than with books. He spent time with people. He loved them so much. And as this spotless, immaculate, sinless Lamb of God that nobody could find any blemish in, he offered himself without blemish. Without blemish. He offered his perfect life to the Father. And then he was punished. The one who, who never sinned was punished for sin. And yet he never sinned. Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in him. And in the next sentence, he condemns him to death. You talk about injustice. Imagine you're in some court and someone declares you absolutely innocent and then the verdict is death sentence. So, I mean, you talk about injustice. Did anybody ever go through an injustice like that? He's totally unjust in the eyes of the world. But he wasn't dying for his own sins. He was being punished, I don't mean he was being personally punished because he wasn't, but he was bearing the punishment of our sins, fully living the life that we should have lived, fully dying the death that we should have died, substituting for us in every respect before the Father. So he goes and he presents his own blood without blemish to God, and that purifies our conscience from dead works that we may serve the living God. The second thing the blood of Christ will do is it will cleanse your conscience. When you see what was happening upon the cross, and you see that that blood is being given to the Father, doesn't mean that he's dying in heaven, but it's being given to the Father as having been accomplished. When you see that, you know you can be sure that you are totally, radically, immediately forgiven for anything you've ever done, even if you did it ten seconds ago. And you won't be do something really bad or you have this weird idea. It takes time to get forgiven. You know, I better really repent and sort myself out and maybe the Lord will forgive me. We're talking as though it will take time for God to forgive us. Remember what happened with David. David committed murder and adultery. And uh, for a year, it didn't seem to bother him very much. And then Nathan the prophet got to him and said to him, you are the man, remember the story, you are the man. Remember what David said? David said, oh, you're right. I have sinned. He immediately admitted what he'd done. When Nathan finally got to him, he immediately said, oh, yeah, you're right, I've sinned. Do you remember the next sentence? The next sentence, Nathan says, it's all right, the Lord's put away your sin. This immediate confession, this immediate forgiveness. It doesn't say repent and sort your life out and eventually the Lord will let you go. It's immediate forgiveness seconds after he confesses what he did. Yeah, so the Lord throws away. He still has to repent. He still has to think about what he's done. He still has to write Psalm 51. But the forgiveness is immediate. 
his immediate forgiveness. That's what Hebrews 10.19 means when it says, since we have grounds for confidence right now, immediately, there is no reason at all why you, why you should not immediately step into full fellowship with the Lord. You draw near, you come close to God with full assurance of faith immediately now, because everything that needs to be done for you to be immediately, totally, radically forgiven, able to serve the living God, is there for you right now, this very second. A daily cleansing. You come and you confess your sins. There are people who say you don't need to confess your sins. I think you do. If we confess our sins, we Christians, one John, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. That, that surprises us a bit. I think if we'd written one John, we wouldn't have said faithful and just, we would have said faithful and merciful. God is faithful. And he's so merciful that he forgives us our sins. That's not what John says. He says faithful and righteous. Why is it faithful and righteous? Because the price has been paid for. It would be unrighteous if Jesus has paid the price for our forgiveness and we don't get forgiven. It would be unfair. Imagine you go to a shop and you, you, you buy something, you buy a book or something, and you give the guy the cash and you, you, you find all that needs to be done and you want to walk away with the book and, and they don't give it to you. He said, well, you know, I bought it, you better give it to me. No, 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 I don't think I'll do it. No, I paid the price, I bought it, give me the money. You, 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 why, why can't I have it? You would demand this. It's been paid for. You would demand this. It would be unfair for somebody not to give you something which you bought. And so you get given it as a matter of justice, as a matter of fairness. And God is faithful and righteous. He's righteous. He has to give it to you. He got, in a sense, he's got no choice because he himself has paid the price for the forgiveness of your sins. It would be unfair of God not to forgive you once the price has been paid. So he's not just being faithful and merciful. You could say that, but he's not just being that. Even, even greater, even bigger, even more uh, impressive because he's just and fair is that he's faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins. And to cleanse you. To make you feel clean. Remember, I quoted Hebrews 10, 19. That you come with your bodies washed with pure water. Have you ever been talking to some sinner and he begins to sh share some things with you which are so disgusting and it makes, you feel, it makes you feel a bit sort of defiled. And when you get back home, the first thing you do is take a shower. I mean, you talking with that guy, it makes your feet unclean. Have you ever felt polluted with, with some, some wickedness you've done or something when you've been talking to? You feel even, even your body's unclean. You're in the shower when you get home. And when you come to the Lord, you come with your conscience clean and with your bodies washed with pure water. You're clean outside and inside. The total human being feels clean and accepted. We are meant to feel clean when we come to the Lord when we draw near. We're to feel clean because Jesus died for us. When I was a teenager, I got saved as a teenager. When I was saved as a teenager, I used to do something, I don't do it now, but I used to when I was a teenager. I used to take anything I felt bad about and I used to, as it were, put it on Jesus. I would say, Lord, you know, I know I'll do this by putting on Jesus. And I would do this, but I'd, I'd disown it. So, you know, I'd put my sins on Jesus. Now, he died for them. Uh, they belonged to him, not me. I don't do that quite like that these days, but I used to as a teenager. You couldn't do that. You couldn't put 
put your sins upon Jesus. He's died for them. His responsibility now. He's paid the price. And don't let them be on you. If you confess them, put them on Jesus. Leave them with him. And he says the most amazing, God says the most amazing thing. I think it's one of the most incredible things anyway to be found in the Bible. He says their sins and their iniquities will they remember no more. Imagine God, imagine God getting absent-minded. You know, my friend Greg Haslam, who's just retired, retired from Westminster Chapel, this uh, neuralgia, this um, neurological thing he has, is affecting his memory. So you talk to him about something, and ten minutes later, so you talk about it again, and he's forgotten it. It's, it's affecting his memory. He can't remember. He can't remember what he said just now. Imagine God having a neurological problem. He can't remember something that happened just now. That's a bit of a weird thing, isn't it? And you talk to God and say, well, Lord, you know, I really sinned. I, I shouldn't have done that. And the Lord said, says, oh, I can't remember that. What was that? I can't remember that. And imagine the picture of God not being able to remember something. It's, it's an incredible picture. But that's what it says. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. You may say to me, well, it's not literal, well, I suppose you're right. But that's the way the picture's put to us. It's put to us in that way that God's not even thinking about it. He, he can't even remember. It's not in his mind. If it's not in his mind, it doesn't need to be in your mind. Why should you be thinking about something that God's not even thinking about? Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. If God's forgiven you, you can forgive yourself. Sometimes it's harder to forgive yourself than to believe that God's forgiven you. You do something you shouldn't do and it damages your wife or your family or your friends something and you really feel bad, not so much because you've sinned against God. You're even more concerned than if you've damaged your relationship with people. Now that's why in the law there's a fifth, there's five sacrifices. The fifth one is a restitution offering where you feel you can't compensate for something you did. Sometimes it's difficult to forgive yourself and you can't make up for what you did. And Jesus is our, is our restitution offering. Even that, you hand over to him. You can't deal with it. You better leave it with him. He forgives you. He takes the responsibility on his, on his own shoulders. He says to you, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And you can feel clean. Inside your conscience, outside in your body, washed with pure water. You stand before the presence of God totally clean in his sight. It is as if you are Jesus. Just as on the cross, it is as if Jesus were the sinner who's committed the sins of the whole world. He's dying there as though, as though he's a sinner. Once you are coming with faith, it is as though you are Jesus. And you are as clean and as righteous in the eyes of God as if you were Jesus. I mean, you talk about generosity, you talk about mercy and grace and kindness. What bigger thing could you ever have than that? To be as righteous in the eyes of God as if you're Jesus. Daily cleansing. And I'm asking you to notice the tenses in verse 11 and 12. The tense is a past tense. It's an aorist, which sort of means that it's past. Thus, having secured or securing right at that point an eternal redemption. The tense in verses 13 and 14 is a future tense. How much more shall, how much more shall the blood of Christ? This is something which you will get day by day by day. It's not something you're given forever in one go. You get it daily 
as you come honestly, with a pure heart, a clean heart, telling, telling God the truth about yourself, walking in the light, as John would say, you shall daily get this cleansing inside and outside. The third thing that the blood of Christ will give you, and I won't spend time on this just yet, is it will enable you to get your inheritance. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called, which means to say, those who come to Jesus, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred which redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The, the broken laws under the law of Moses are forgiven by the blood of Jesus and now you can have eternal redemption, you can have daily cleansing and if you go on that way you may, and once again I ask you to notice the tense, the eternal redemption, past tense, you've got it. The daily cleansing, future tense, you will constantly get it. The inheritance, you may get it. That could be lost. By faith and patience, you inherit the promises. By unbelief and impatience, you could lose the promises. So if you pursue this way, you go this way, you may. The tense is, in English, we would say conditional, or if you're a grammarian, you could say subjunctive. You, you may get it, it's there for you, it's available. It's not absolutely guaranteed. This does depend upon your walking in faith. You may get the eternal inheritance. Three things the blood of Christ will do for you. One of them, you have it right now, you've got it forever. Second one, you get it day by day by day as you walk with God. Third one, you may get it as you persist in living the life of persistent faith, diligent faith, going on in faith. You discover your calling, you discover the purpose of God for your life, you go on believing no matter what happens to you, and you now you're able to lay hold of an inheritance, and that will last forever. Jesus will say to you, well done, well done. When Jesus says to you, well done, what a day that will be. When Jesus says, well done, the whole universe will be there. Did you ever want to be famous? You ever wanted to be on TV? Or, or someone write a book about you? I promise you, you will be famous. Nobody will ever forget that Jesus said, well done to you. You'll be famous forever. That, that, that voice, well done, well done, it will sound out through the whole of eternity. Nobody will ever forget that Jesus said, well done to you. You will be famous. Everybody will be there. Your, your family will be there. Your wife will be there. Your husband will be there. station and a woman found me speaking on inheritance Colossians 1 
And the woman phoned me and she said, uh, this is selfish, he's, li he's living to get something, he's selfish. And I said to her, what if the reward is more of Jesus? And she said, oh, that, that's different, more of Jesus, that's all right. <laughs> that's what the reward is, it's more of Jesus. It's not an earthly thing. The, the, the world wouldn't be interested. Only Christians are interested in it. It's more of Jesus, it's more privilege, it's more opportunity to serve him. It's not selfish, it's more of the will of God in your life. Jesus saying you've been faithful in a little. Now I'll move you on a bit and you'll be faithful even in much. It's an expansion of your fellowship, of your service, of your love of God. It's more of Jesus. And that's why it's worth going after by faith and by patience. Let's stand and let's pray together as we bring this session to a close. Our Father, what an amazing book this letter to the Hebrews is. So much we need it. What a big panorama you put before us. What an amazing vista, an amazing scenery of inheriting the kingdom. Coming into all that you've got for us. What a an amazing Lord you are, we can spend all eternity, no doubt we will, spend all eternity gazing and gazing, considering Jesus, the great high priest, the apostle and priest of our confession, the one who saved us, the one who became a sinner, a sort of sinner in your eyes, in order that we may become the children of God, the one who became the son of man, that we might become the sons of God. Oh, what an amazing saviour, I pray that it may grip us, that it may tenderise our hearts, that it may make us long to serve you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love everybody everywhere as we love ourselves. Come and do these things for us, and by faith and patience, let us inherit your kingdom, show us our calling, show us what we are to do for you by faith, show us the way that we may go there, and hear you say to us, well done. Teach us these things. May this Hebrews book come alive to us, that we may inherit the promises. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Praise God.